recently in the bulletin as I read from John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone jars, water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have drunk, have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. All right, please pray with me. Gracious God, we thank you so much for uh, your word that you give us, for these stories that we get to look at in the life of Jesus. And uh, Lord, we want to be his disciples. We want to be your disciples. And so help us as we... Uh, begin this series in the Gospel of John, looking at the signs and the sayings of Jesus. Uh, help us to see Jesus for who he is, and like the disciples, uh, give us faith. Give us, give us eyes to believe, hearts to believe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, as as uh, most of you know, before we moved to San Diego, my family, we lived in uh, New England for about five years. And one of the interesting things about New England is there's a lot of history. And so you could be in any random place and you see a sign uh, telling you something significant has happened. Well, one day I was in the town of Newburyport and I parked in front of the library. Uh, and there was a sign on the library. I think the sign is there behind you. It says the house was built by Patrick uh, Tracy for son Nathaniel. You know, that's whatever. It's an old house. But here's the thing. At this house... George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, John Quincy Adams, the Marquis de Lafayette, Benedict Arnold, and Aaron Burr had all been entertained. So one day, actually my parents, I think, were with me in this particular time. I went to the library. I was like, can I see the room? And they took us back and through this batteries from the vein. You're in this room where all of these people at one point had dinner. And you're just like, this is insane, right? And you would never even know because it's the library that just part of the library took over a house. Right? The sign outside of the building tells you that something significant happened inside that building. Uh, what we're going to be doing over the next several weeks is we're going to be looking at several signs that the Gospel of John gives us that tell us Jesus is significant. There's something that you need to stop and ponder and think about the life of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus. We're going to look at six of several signs 
that are given in the Gospel of John. We're also going to look at all seven of the I am statements. There are seven times in the Gospel of John where Jesus says, I am, and then he says something significant, something that when you stop and think about it, just makes your head spin. Well, what do you mean you are the resurrection? What do you mean that you are the good shepherd? What does it mean that you are uh, the, 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 the door, right? Each of these is loaded with significance and with meaning. And what we're going to do between now and Easter uh, is we're going to spend time in the gospel of John considering the significance of Jesus by looking at the signs and the sayings that he did. John actually gives us this information. He gives us the signs and sayings of Jesus because he wants us to believe. Uh, belief is this kind of funny thing, right? Perhaps some of you are here this morning and, and you don't believe yet, right? Maybe you're searching. Maybe you're asking questions. And part of the reason why you're here is because you're trying to figure out who this Jesus person is. Some of us might be here this morning and our faith is faltering. Maybe at some point in the past we had really strong faith, our faith was deep, but now because of circumstances, because of any number of different things, we find ourselves in a moment where our faith is not where it once was uh, or where we want it to be. Regardless of where we might find ourselves on the journey of faith, John is writing to help us believe. In fact, he, he tells you that that's what he's doing. The very end of the gospel, one of the, one, of the, one of the final chapters, John writes this. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So think about that. We're going to look at six, and there are debates about what other things constitute signs in the Gospel of John. But John himself tells you there's a whole bunch more I could have written uh, that all underlie the fact that Jesus is God's promised Savior. Uh, so we're going to be looking at those things. So, so here's the thing, that, that in your reading of the Gospel of John, I encourage you, I encourage you now to have your Bible open, but I encourage you to read John over the coming weeks. And any time that you see the word sign, it appears 17 times uh, in the Gospel of John. Uh, anytime you hear Jesus say, I am, sometimes he says, I am the resurrection and life. I am the, I am the good shepherd. Sometimes he just says, I am. And when he does that, people are literally knocked off their feet. Right, but every single time that the word sign or Jesus says, I am, appear in the Gospel of John, that's like a neon light shining, saying, stop, pay attention. Something significant is happening. Something significant is being revealed to us about who Jesus is and why he came. All right, so now, why, uh, why are we going to do this? Give you my, my rationale for wanting to do a series on this particular topic. Uh, so first of all, four things. First of all, uh, you have heard me say again and again and again, our mission as a church is to make disciples. Uh, so as disciples, we need to know the story of Jesus. Uh, so it's important for us to regularly come back to the gospel accounts so that we can know the life of Jesus. If being a disciple is knowing Jesus, following Jesus, and doing the kinds of things that Jesus did, then it's important 
to actually know the story of Jesus. So we're in the Gospel of John to do that. Uh, Secondly, uh, we're in the Gospel of John right now because faith, as I refer to, faith is this fluid kind of thing, right? We, we find ourselves at different moments of our life where faith feels really strong and times where faith feels really weak. Some of us are on the journey towards faith or maybe away from faith. Uh, so looking at the story of Jesus is a way to help strengthen us in our faith and what it is that we believe. That's the second reason. The third reason is that I know uh, all of us know people who do not follow Jesus. uh, And many of us have opportunity to have spiritual conversations with these individuals. Uh, And so by looking at the life of Jesus, my hope is that you will feel more strengthened, empowered uh, to be able to have spiritual conversations with people that you know about who Jesus is and why he came. And then the fourth reason is that sometimes those spiritual conversations uh, present an opportunity for you to invite somebody to church on a Sunday morning and so that you know, hey, between now and Easter, Omar's in the Gospel of John. And so every time that you invite somebody to church over the next week, you know, like, hey, we're going to be talking about Jesus and why Jesus is really significant and why we need to follow him. So those are the reasons why we're going to be looking at the signs and the sayings of Jesus. So the first sign is Jesus turning water into wine. Now, I realize that even as we go into this particular topic, that there are some of us that uh, our relationship to alcohol is not healthy. Uh, I realize that some of us uh, would identify as being an alcoholic. I realize that some of us recognize like, hey, I, I just need to not drink uh, because my relationship with alcohol is not what it should be. You're going to hear me say in the sermon, hey, we're going to drink wine. And what I want to be really sensitive is that I don't want to create a stumbling block for you. Um, so if, if you don't have a healthy relationship with alcohol, we're going to talk about wine this morning because that's what Jesus did. Jesus turned water into wine, really good wine. Uh, but what I want you to understand is that even if you can't enjoy wine in this life, that in the new heavens and the new earth, our bodies, our souls, our wills are going to have, going to be remade in such a way that we will be able in the new heavens and the new earth to enjoy the feast that Jesus provides for us. And part of that feast is wine. Uh, so I, I want to I name that reality because I know for some of you, there's going to be a tension as we look at this particular passage this morning. All right. So what we're told is that Jesus comes into the town of Cana and Galilee. There's a map there uh, on, the, on the screen. So you kind of get a sense of where Cana is in relationship to the Sea of Galilee. Weddings were a big deal. Uh, A wedding in a village town like Cana would have been a community affair. Everybody would have come out to be a part of this wedding. And so it's no surprise that Jesus uh, is there. In fact, some some have guessed, some have wondered if the fact that Mary knows that the wine is running out before it's widely, widely known, before everybody else knows about it, um, that maybe Mary was actually a part of the group of people that were throwing the wedding, right? Some have, some have wondered, hey, is it possible that maybe this was a relative of Mary's 
uh, that which, you know, she finds out that the wine is running out. But, but, but this is a disaster, right? Like for us now, if you, you know, TikTok, Instagram, whatever, and you do hashtag wedding fail, that's entertainment for us, right? We acknowledge that, right? Uh, that, that somebody's wedding going awry is a cause for funny stories. We have to understand that in Jesus's day, this kind of event was a disaster. And not, that's not hyperbole. It was a disaster. It would have been a cultural disgrace. The family would have been, um, would have been filled with shame to fail at something so significant. It would have been perceived by some as a bad omen on the marriage. So this is a really big deal. Uh, and so Mary comes to Jesus, and this is what we see in verses 3 to 5. Uh, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Okay, can we just, like, this is a weird little section, okay? Uh, and I read multiple commentaries, and everybody's like, maybe it was this, maybe it was that. We just simply, like, at the end of the day, there are cultural elements here that we just don't understand, all right? So let me tell you the things that I'm pretty confident of. I'm pretty confident that Jesus was not being rude to his mom, okay? How do I know that? Well... The fifth commandment is honor your father and mother. If Jesus breaks the fifth commandment at his first time at bat, we're all in a lot of trouble, okay? So we're pretty sure that Jesus didn't, was not being rude to his mother. What's really interesting, uh, when, you, when you read the Gospel of John, Jesus' mother is never named. Her, her name is never given in the Gospel of John. The only Mary in the Gospel of John is Mary Magdalene uh, or Mary... And there's debate about whether Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, is Mary Magdalene. Neither here nor there. All right. The two times that Mary, the mother of Jesus, is referenced are here. And then she's referenced again at the crucifixion. Both those times, Jesus addresses his mother as woman. The second time at the cross, he's on the cross, he's dying, and he says, woman, and he basically entrusts the care of his mother to John, the apostle. Okay? Some of you know this, right? So we know that surely he's not being disrespectful to his mom as he's dying on the cross. So certainly this is not Jesus being disrespectful to his mother. That's the first thing that we know. <coughs> Excuse me. The second thing that we know is that Mary is convinced that Jesus can do something about this, right? There are you know, like, whoa, what does she mean? When he said, it's not my time, she says, do whatever. We, whatever, I don't, that to me is not the important thing. The important thing to me is that Mary is convinced that Jesus is able to do something about this. And, and here's the thing. She is asking the, the waiters, the servants, the people who are there to trust her in trusting Jesus. What does she say? Do whatever he tells you to do. Now, these people, you know, like, you know, they're servants, right? And there's like this woman comes in. She's evidently got some authority, right? And she's like, you do whatever. And they're like, lady, what are you talking about? There's no wine. Like, what's he's going to go like? He's going to bring in a cask of wine, right? And then you're going to see in a second what Jesus tells them to do. But here's a really significant thing. This is discipleship. 
You know, we talk about, hey, we want to be a disciple-making church. We want to be a church that helps people to know Jesus, follow Jesus, and do the kinds of things that Jesus did. And to do that, we have to, we have to be tuned into the question, what is Jesus asking me to do? This is what it means to be a disciple. And Mary here is inviting us into. So, so here's the thing. This is really fascinating, right? The application for us is happening before the sign, right? Jesus is asking you, hey, trust me. Mary is saying, trust Jesus, even before you've seen anything that he is capable of doing, because that's what she's asking the servants to do, to trust him even before he has done anything to make, him, make them say, oh yeah, we should trust him. It's a, it's a profound moment of faith. And that's what faith is, right? Faith is really like, I'm going to trust you even though I may not have all of the answers that I want. That doesn't mean it's blind faith. That doesn't mean that it's a leap in the dark, right? It's not that, you know, that wonderful scene in Indiana Jones, right, where he like steps out on that bridge. That's not Christianity. It's great cinematography, great scene, love the movie. That's not Christian faith. Christian faith is trusting God that he is good at his word. Now, uh, there's this other really weird thing that happens. And so let me just kind of not note it, and then we're going to move on, and we're going to come back to it. So Mary says, hey, they're running out of wine. And Jesus says, woman, my hour has not yet come. And you just be like, what? What are you talking about? Your hour has not yet come. How many of you like mystery novels? Mystery novels? All right. Ooh. You're, you're in, right? All right. Kathy's like, yes. Um, I'm reading right now a uh, Agatha Christie, one of the Hercule Poirot mysteries. Uh, and so here's the thing, right? When you're reading a mystery novel, you got to be like super keyed in to the different clues that are being given you because you never know which is the clue that's going to solve the mystery, right? John is giving us a clue. It, it's a little nugget and you just have to hold on to it because it's not going to be evident until later in the gospel what on earth Jesus is talking about here. But I'm going to spoil it for you, okay? Any time that you hear Jesus in the gospel of John say the word hour, it is talking about his death on the cross. So, so Jesus is thinking about what? He's thinking about his crucifixion. Hold on to that. Hold on to that. All right, so uh, Mary says, do whatever he tells you to do. So servants are there. All right, Jesus, what is it that you want us to do? Nearby, verse 6, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for the ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. As the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine, he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. So uh, the scene is that you've got these really large stone jars that were used for ceremonial washing. So here's the thing you have to understand, just culturally, right? That there was this concept in Judaism known as being ceremonially unclean. Ceremonial uncleanness was not sin necessarily, but to be ceremonially unclean prohibited you from being able to be fully engaged in all of the religious practices 
of the people of Israel. So if you were a devout Jew, you took being ceremonially clean very seriously. That was, a, that was a priority for you. So you've got these six large jars that were there in order for things to be washed properly, right? So this is like, this is water intended for the purpose of keeping things clean. Follow that. Keep that in mind, right? Uh, and so what Jesus does is he says to them, fill the jars. Now what's really fascinating is he does not say to them, fill them to the brim. He says to them, fill the jars. They fill the jars to the brim. Uh, so what ends up happening? Uh, the water turns into wine. Now, uh, I did a little research. I was trying to figure out, I was like, well, how many bottles of wine are we actually talking about here, right? Uh, so because we don't, you know, it says 20 to 30 gallons, so the number is fluid, but several people suggested that this would be roughly the equivalent of 900 bottles of wine. Now, how would you like somebody to gift you 900 bottles of wine, of really good wine? right? That's the kind of miracle that Jesus just performed. Now, why on earth is that a sign? Why on earth is that a sign? Why on earth is that significant? Two reasons, or two reasons I'm going to give you. There's more than two reasons. First of all, the wine is a sign pointing to purification. The wine is a sign pointing to purification. To pointing to purification. We are all looking to be purified from something, right? There is, whether it's, history, whether it's our personal history or maybe there's something that we're dealing with now, all of us in some way, shape, or form, there is there's something that we look and we say, I don't want that. I don't want that part of my history. I don't want that part of my story. I don't want... All of us in some way, shape, or form do that, right? And so what do we do? We work really, really hard to have some aspect of who we are not be a part of who we are, right? We're trying to purify ourselves. We're trying to make ourselves presentable in some way, shape, or form. And, and so here, the thing is that these stone jars, all they did was clean the outside, right? Hands clean, dishes clean, great. It doesn't affect your heart in any way, shape, or form. And so what Jesus is doing here by turning water into wine is he is saying that there is a purification that is going to come that supersedes the purification of water. You Think about this, right? All of the purification water for that wedding is no longer usable as purification water. It is now wine. In essence, nothing else can be purified ceremonially at this wedding. Because the jars that were used for that are now holding wine, and you don't use wine for purification. What is Jesus saying? The cross. See, Jesus says, my hour has not yet come, and then he turns water into wine, symbolizing for us, signifying for us, pointing us to the reality that he is going to make purification not with water, but with his blood. How do we get there, right? So you know, right? John 7, 30, John 8, 20, John 12, 23, John 13, 1. All places where cross, hour and cross are intimately connected with each other. 
isn't it significant for us? Here, no, it is significant for us. It should be significant for us. That every time that we have the Lord's Supper, we have the symbol of wine being presented to us. And what do we say? This is the blood of Jesus. That the sign that Jesus left us when he left us the meal of communion is the sign of wine representing his blood. The blood that purifies. Jesus in Hebrews 1.4, we are told that he is the one who makes purification for us. In 1 Peter 1 verses 18 and 19, we read this. It doesn't use the word purification. It uses the word redemption. But this is really significant. Listen, he says, for you know, this is Peter. He says, you know that it was not with perishable things like silver and gold that we were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to us from our ancestors, but that it was with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. The, the wine, the water being turned into wine is a symbol that Jesus is making purification for his bride, the church. The second thing that the wine signifies is the abundance of the kingdom of God. The abundance of the kingdom of God. We are all looking for abundance. Right? We, we all have the, that, the abundance of that dream vacation, the abundance of that dream home, the abundance of that dream job, the abundance of something that we're looking for. And we say, man, it would be so nice to have that. If I had that, life would be really good. If I had that, I would be happy or at least happier than I am now. But all of that, right, if for those of us who have had that thought and then we get that thing, we know that that feeling is fleeting. That feeling goes away. And then there's that next thing that we're like, oh, if only I have that. What Jesus is saying here is like, he's pointing to the abundance that comes from the kingdom of God. How do we get there? Well, what was our call to worship, right? Our call to worship was a promise that God gave thousands of years before Jesus lived, over a thousand, a thousand years before Jesus lived, roughly. It was a promise that was given about what the kingdom of God was going to be like. And what were we told? We're told there in Isaiah 25, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all people, a banquet of aged wine. So here is Jesus Right? He is the Lord Almighty, and he prepares wine. And he's saying, look, it's happening. It's starting. The promises that God made are beginning to unfold, and you are getting to taste it for yourselves. But here's the thing, right? That that, that was, that's just the beginning of the process. Because the second part of that promise is what? On this mountain, he, that is the Lord Almighty, will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. Well, that hasn't happened yet, right? We still die. Several of us here, just in the last year, have had loved ones who've passed away. But the abundance that Jesus promises, he says that by him facing his hour, he makes it possible for us to have faith that one day death will not have the last word anymore. 
He makes it possible for us to be able to, to know that he has defeated death and that by him defeating death through the resurrection, that one day we're going to be at that feast and we're going to be able to drink wine and we're going to be able to celebrate. What we're told as the story ends uh, is that Jesus did this miracle and this was the first of the signs by which he revealed his glory. See, Jesus turning water into wine is a moment in which his glory as the king who makes purification, his glory as the king who promises that one day you're going to sit at a table with me and you're going to have a feast and I'm going to provide for you wine that's going to blow your minds. Not because of the wine and of itself, but because of the sheer abundance of God's grace and the beauty of, this, of his kingdom. Right? And, and, and here's the thing, right? We're not there yet. We're not there yet. But the life of the disciple, right? The life that we are trying to, to um, foster here at Harbor is a life, the life of those who see that king, who see that vision, who see him turning water into wine, and we say, we're going to follow him. We're going to seek after him. That's what we're inviting you to, church. So, so Bible studies are about to start, right? That question that Mary said, not that question, that statement that Mary said, do what he tells you to do, uh, that is going to be, it's worded slightly differently, but that is going to be one of the central questions that we're going to be asking every week over the next eight weeks as we look at Genesis 1 through 11. Right? We're, we're going to enter into a time where we're saying, look, we want to know what this king has to say to us. And we're going to start at the beginning of what he's given us. We're going to start in Genesis and we're going to ask these questions as we seek to follow him. The wine is a sign pointing to the purification. The wine is a sign pointing to the abundance that Jesus brings. And, and the disciples saw it, and it says that they believed in him. They already believed in him, right? That's why they were following him in the first place. That's what John 1 is all about. John 1 is all these people are starting to follow Jesus because they believed in him, and now all of a sudden a miracle happens, and it says they believed in him again. Why? I think it's because their faith was being strengthened and deepened and given more uh, shape because they were walking with Jesus. And don't we all need that? Right? Don't we all need our faith to be deepened and strengthened and shaped more and more as we continue to follow Jesus? This is just the first one, folks. We've got six more, and we haven't even talked about the I am, state, I am statements yet. This, I'm, I'm so excited. Uh, to explore this life of Jesus with you. All right, let's pray. Uh, gracious God, thank you so much for revealing your, uh, revealing your son Jesus to us through the sign of water into wine. Uh, Lord God, we uh, ask that you would please help us uh, as, we, as we behold this first sign, uh, as we look at what it is that Jesus has done, that you would please help us uh, to, to believe that. For those of us who do not believe that you would move us closer 
to the point of faith in Jesus, that for those of us who our faith is faltering, that you would strengthen our faith, that for those of us who our, our faith is, uh, is, is, uh, is, is strong, that you would make it stronger, uh, that you would help all of us to see Jesus and behold his glory and worship him. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.